Simon from News on the White, and we are in Ventnor today, and we're with... India Allen. Now, India, we saw photos of your work online, which we'll put up in the article as well. Mm-hmm. It's just staggeringly beautiful plaster work. Now, that, me saying that isn't, isn't going to really help people understand it without looking at the pictures. I'm just thinking maybe the th- way to start is just to sort of talk about how you got to where you are, because this isn't something you've always done, is it? No, no, it's, it's a fairly new kind of endeavour for me. Um, probably quite a long story, I don't know how far back you want me to, want me to go with it, but um, sort of in a, a brief overview nutshell, um, I studied prop making at university. I went to university a little bit later than, than most people usually would. I uh, took a few years messing around and seeing what I liked doing and it sort of turned out that I liked making things. Um, so I studied prop making and that's where I got into kind of 3D creative work and had a little bit of sculpting experience with clay. Um, and after graduating from there, various job roles that I did, sort of freelance stuff, um, other kind of more prop making specific things, all sort of propelled me further into carrying on with the 3D kind of work. I eventually progressed into doing sort of luxury interiors, bespoke artworks as like a subcontractor through another company. And that's where I first started working with plaster work. I think there was a client that wanted a sample. My boss thought that I would be really good at it, really encouraged me to, you know, just just gave me a piece of wood, gave me a bag of plaster and a palette knife and said, you know, wow. make, make it up, go, you know, right. see what you can do. Um, and it turns out managed it really well and the client was really happy with it and then just sort of snowballed from there sort of was doing more and more samples of seeing kind of different subject matters that I could create and shapes and textures and I just it was the the thing that I've loved the most out of every kind of creative process that I've tried throughout my kind of career and life it's the thing that I just thought oh god this is, is so much fun and I really love the the finish the final effect of it but it um, seems I've never seen anything like it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess if I imagine maybe very grand houses back in previous times, yeah, then you could imagine something as, as stunningly beautiful as that being mm-hmm. on the walls. But has it been something that sort of was back in olden days? I'm, I'm sounding really ignorant. But, <laughs> and, and then and then coming on to now is is reemerging because. Maybe there's a people to, they have the money to pay for it? Or? Yes, so there's, I mean, it's, it's got a very, very long history. You can kind of, there's arguments that you could kind of trace at least relief sculpture in some form back to like the Neolithic period, if you look at sort of cave, carvings in caves. Um, and sort of all the way from then to now, it's kind of progressed and involved using different materials. Um, so because the, the technique that I use is, is called relief sculpture. It's also sometimes called... Um, Bas relief, which is me pronouncing it very ignorantly. It's Italian. I think it's meant to be pronounced bas relief. Uh-huh. Um, but that's, yeah, if you type that into Google, then that's the thing that will come up with the most things that look like my kind of work. Right. Um, but it's evolved through sort of architecture. If you look at like the Arc de Triomphe and sort of stone masonry, that's a kind of relief sculpture. That tends to be quite a high relief as opposed to a low a sort of more shallow relief. That's, and that's the inverse. They're taking material away. They're whereas taking you're material away, up. whereas, yeah, I sort of do the reverse of building it up. Um, yeah, building it up from a flat surface and trying to make it look as if it's 
it's all part of the same material mm. it's all growing out of one flat surface um but it was sort of a lot of art deco kind of buildings have right. um this kind of a lot of a sort of kind of stricter looking harsher lines and mm. lots of layers with lots of depth so you can see examples that if you type in sort of art deco architecture um but yes, yeah, so it's, it's grown throughout the years and all kinds of materials have changed and stuff. It's, you can kind of, you kind of do it with whatever kind of material you want to. I've chosen plastic because that's what I, what I enjoyed working with the most. But you mm -hmm. can do relief sculpture with clay. You can, you can do it stone. You can do wood. Um, you can do foam and then coat it in things. Right. Um, you could, I could do one of my pieces, make a mould of it and then cast it in something like fibreglass. So it's really lightweight because my pieces are fairly okay. heavy because they are solid plaster. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's just so many possibilities with it. And you're going to be doing a course at Key Arts? I am, yes. Yeah, so I've so got people, anyone can join and learn it? Yes, yeah. Yeah, that was uh, part of my aim sort of coming over here, um, which I'm sure we'll get on Here being to. the Isle of Wight. Here being the Isle of Wight mm -hmm. um, because I am a newbie to the island. Um, you know, I wanted to be able to make art and sell art and um, do bespoke artworks for, for interiors, whether that's on, on sort of art boards as I usually do it, or whether it's directly onto walls, because it can be sort of a larger design scheme if you've got the budget and the space and the sort of grand, because mm. <laughs> it, it, it will be quite a grand thing generally, mm. sort of almost reminiscent of like stately homes. Right, that's how that ornate, was in my mind. Yeah, the yeah. kind of ornate plaster decoration they have but you know we could do it with any kind of subject matter it doesn't have to be the sort of traditional little shapes and swooshes I'm mm -hmm. sure there's proper names for those but mm -hmm. I don't know mm -hmm. um, but yes when I was coming over here I wanted to be able to make make art but I also wanted to be able to kind of teach and get other people involved in you know just trying things so I think a lot of people rule themselves out they say oh you know you meet a lot of people and say oh I'm not creative I, I can't I can't do that or I can pick up a paintbrush or and I think it's I just think it's silly. Yeah, <laughs> I think yeah. everyone, they just, people haven't found what they, what they like doing. Or you allowed yeah. themselves to try. Yeah, to experiment and, and to not be good at something and just enjoy the process of it. So I thought it would be, yeah, I do like talking to people and, and showing people things mm -hmm. and, and watching people discover talents or things they enjoy doing. So I thought if I can also do a bit of workshops and teaching over here, that would be, give me a nice, well-rounded kind mm. of career. In well, that that, that's good. I mean, it, I can imagine, the, like I keep saying, the pieces are so stunningly beautiful. People might think, well, I'm not going to be able to do that. But that's mm -hmm. not the point, is it? Yeah. It's have a go and, and you will produce something. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. It doesn't, you don't have to be replicating any kind of um, specific, like the level of detail that my pieces are. You know, if you, if you search online for plaster relief sculpture, you'll see the broadest range of styles from really abstract kind of flowy organic things things that are just more texture based things that are more like mine where i'm specifically kind of depicting like a type of bird that i mm -hmm. wanted to have a go at copying you know you can really do anything that you like with it um so yeah i do think i, I did i was a little worried that people would sort of see pictures and think oh no i can't do that but oh yeah really would stress that it's it's completely what you make of it mm -hmm. go in with just almost no expectations and just see what you come mm. out with. Just mm. learn the techniques. And so how did you, I mean, you, you mentioned you recently came to the island. 
Maybe all this this when you mentioned props, I was doing, Ugh, I wanted to get a, ask about it straight away. I guess you probably get a lot of that. That I mean, we generally know what props are mm-hmm. as things that are used in film or TV yes. or theatre. I guess. Yeah. How did you? I mean, I didn't know there was a course to make props. I, I didn't actually know there was a course to make props. It's not something that I was ever really aware of. It was not conscious in my mind. Um, I was never particularly into film or really into theatre. Yeah, it was never really in my consciousness. I actually, um, when I did go to university, I'd been working in charity shops for a few years after I finished school, um, managing charity shops, and I really loved it. And I loved doing the window displays and trying to make the shop look lovely and a bit more fancy than typical typically um so i originally went to university to study visual merchandising and branding sort of doing window displays and in that first year of that course it quite quickly kind of clicked that i wanted to make things for window displays as opposed to design the look of the window display um and a very good friend of mine that i had on the course who was very proactive and far smarter than me did a little search online and stumbled upon prop making as a course and showed it to me and called the university and, you know, made me apply. They said, you know, she said, are there still spaces? Because it was, it was May and, you know, most people have already been accepted by that time of mm. year. Um, but they still had spaces and, you know, she <laughs> sort of arranged for me to get my application in um, and I got accepted to it. So I was like, this is fantastic. It seemed Where was perfect. That? It was at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama, which is in Swiss Cottage in London mostly a drama school, um, but they do sort of a small range of kind of what I'd call backstage courses. They do prop making, scenic construction, scenic art, stage management, that kind of thing. But it's very, very small. There was eight people in my year on my course. Um, so you really get a lot of hands-on time yeah, with tutor. That's it's all based in a workshop. You know, you're not, there's not really a whole lot of theory. There's not even really a whole lot of teaching. And I don't mean that in a mm. negative way. Mm. I mean, it's kind of... You know, we turned up and, you know, our first sort of term or second term, they gave us a picture of something they wanted us to make and said, okay, go off and work work out how to make it. And they, you sort of, the learning came through doing things and doing it wrong and, you know, sketching things out and sort of talking to the tutor. And, you know, if you were, if you had a really mad idea, they'd go maybe and try and steer you. Mm. Um, But it was all learning by doing. Um, So it was, yeah, it was really just fantastic. I can't recommend, if you were... If anyone was interested in sort of prop making or any kind of backstage kind of things, I think it's a really fantastic way of getting into it. And it meant that when I finished that course, I had a very niche set of skills. It was, it was broad in the sense of I, I had making skills in terms of sculpting, clay, mould making, fibreglassing, uh, carving polystyrene to make really sort of big sculptures, um, a bit of carpentry bit of metal work not so much (laughs) yeah that's gone out of my brain now I did do a bit of welding and um so yeah it was super broad but I kind of had a niche direction of a career at least as you know I'm like okay I'm qualified to do Mm. 3d creation it sort of feels like it's would be almost gathering things together that wouldn't be what you'd think to make the thing I'm that's terrible (laughs) putting it so I don't know if, if you wanted to make you, you, I've seen, I guess, models that are used in films, mm-hmm. and they've used bits of plastic that from places that you wouldn't imagine to then make a spacecraft to then look like it's 
designed to be a spacecraft. Yeah, there's there's a lot of that. It was kind of salvaging things and, you know, rummaging around shops and wandering around B&Q looking for things that look like the right shape. Um, particularly when everything we did at university was, you know, they'd give you a very small budget. Um, so you had to really, they taught you the kind of finance side mm. of things and keeping to, to, to your budget. Um, for example, I made, had to make a couple of like freestanding sinks with a, with a mirror, sort of ornate mirror frame attached to them for a theatre show. And that was made up of sort of like a welded frame. And we got sort of a big plastic sphere. I don't know what it was from almost like a fishbowl kind mm-hmm. of thing, cut it in half, and that was the basin of the sink. And then we got a big sort of plastic plant pot and cut the rim off of that and then attached that onto this sort of fishbowl thing. So that's mm. the rim of the sink. Mm. And then like plumbing pipes and guttering, that was kind of all sort of fudged together to create right. the pedestal section. Because it doesn't have to work. Just no, has to it look. just has to look like right. it and on a stage. So you've got a little bit... Sort of more okay. theatre stuff is more forgiving than film stuff often because right. you don't have to make it because the audience are quite far away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you've got a little bit of leeway in terms of the detail that you can get away with. Um, but yeah, it was it taught you to be it taught you to be really resourceful in that yeah. sense. And and sort of puzzle fixing. Yes, yeah, a lot of problem solving because mm. every at every stage something goes wrong. Right. Every single stage, so yeah. it kind of teaches you to and patience. It teaches you, yeah, I guess, then, patience. Right? I mean, I'm still working on the patience, and I must say, I'm still working on the coping strategy of when things go wrong. I still do have to go and have a little cry, and you know, have a little bit of chocolate or a bit of cheese, uh-huh. and then walk away, and then come back to it and go, right, okay, right. how are we going to fix this? That glue didn't work. Let's try ten other glues and see what mm. happens. But um, yeah, it's definitely so. Then, so you're qualified at making props, and then. Where did you go after that? What happens? Um, I did a little bit of freelance work, but it sort of initially, I'm, I'm very much a person that likes stability, um, and freelance just terrified me, sort of knowing that I had London rent to pay, and mm. sort of, you know, okay, I've got two weeks of work with this workshop, and then I don't know what else is happening after yeah. that. I mean, that starting in that TV and film world is hard, isn't it? Because yeah. it's... It's until you build up the networks of people you've yeah, worked absolutely. with. Absolutely, you need to get a foot in the door get... and a reputation and a yeah. few people that like you. I never really went, tried to go into film and telly. Really, I was sort of was airing more on the theatre side of things. That okay. was the kind of stuff that I enjoyed. Is that the um, same structure? You've got to, you work with companies. I get, then... Yeah, it's a sort of it, a lot of the time. I I've always said to people because we'd get sort of. As a graduate, you'd get people that are on the course now contacting us, sort of asking for advice. And I've always just said, you know, you don't even need to necessarily be that good with your core skills. You need to be good with people. Okay. Um, you need to make people like you and you need to evidence that you work hard and you turn up on time. Right. And you're reliable. Yeah. Those are the key things. And then people and hire you solutions. again. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. As long as your making skills are good enough, the main thing is that you can actually make connections and form relationships with people. Mm. But um, yeah, so I, d- I did, a, I think, maybe not even a month of freelancing before I thought, oh, no, I'll do this. And then <laughs> yeah. some of my other friends on the course had gotten some work with a, an immersive experience hospitality company. So they make magical themed cocktail bars. Right. And they were just, they just launched, they just opened one in London. Um, and the bars were all sort of decorated in kind of magical theme mm. and they had definitely nothing to do with harry potter nothing nothing to do with harry potter at all in, in I, any I way tell us. Yeah. <laughs> completely different uh-huh. um but they they had a lot of sort of little projects going on they 
because they embedded sort of technology in props that were around the venues that people could interact with. Um, so yeah, they were looking for people and I went and worked for them. And originally it was on a sort of freelance basis, but it just never really stopped. Um, and I got sort of hired permanently and I was there for three years. Mm. Gradually kind of worked my way up to making... Because I guess that's another stage of... You've got something on, on, a, on a, literally on the stage yes. and people don't touch it. But yeah. then when it's in a venue and people are picking it up, it's got and to be resilient. Desperately and... trying to break it <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> every, every turn. Right. There was a lot of maintenance and learning how to <laughs> fix things and patch things back together. Uh-huh. But yes, yeah, as you say, it was definitely a different um, kind of approach because people are directly in front of it. you know. And it was all magical stuff, so it's not like I really had to make things look completely real and a lot of the things that I made were um sort of taxidermy style heads of mythical creatures like dragons and unicorns and whatever else I felt like making up Mm -hmm. sort of big I don't know about 50 centimeters wide and high and deep I'd say and they'd be mounted on the wall and they had a pipe system within them where you know you'd go up with your a customer would go up with their magic wand and they would tap somewhere on this unicorn head and out of the spout that was coming out of his mouth would come a certain kind of cocktail. Oh, really? Um, oh, wow. So, yeah, for for years I was just sort of churning out variations <laughs> of, of polystyrene unicorn heads to okay. go on, on the walls of these venues. They had a London one and then they had, I think they've got Edinburgh, Brighton, right. New York. So I got to go to New York and do uh-huh. a little bit of work there on the venues, which was fantastic and and does one wand do many heads uh yes yes so that's that's your payment id is it the yeah one? they essentially i think they did try to build i think they did try and they did do one where you the actual it was sort of the technology was built in the into the wand and it was kind of unique to you so okay. you would your tab would basically be running anything you tapped <laughs> it would say okay you're on that you know that's one beer uh-huh. on your tab and now one of those cocktails is on your tab right um it's also it's like rfid technology yeah. um yeah, it was, I mean, wow. it was a really interesting kind of fantastic <laughs> concept, and I think they're still doing pretty well now. How do you... I mean, it's a complete suspension of reality, which I guess most jobs... Well, maybe in the film world it's, it's like that, depending on the type of film you mm-hmm. work on. But how do you balance unicorn heads for eight hours in the day and then go back to the real world in the evening? Is that an easy transition? I mean, I think... I, I was I was living with people who were also prop makers and sort of so it never everyone stopped. in my yeah everyone in my friend group I, <laughs> so I made really good friends with the people that worked in that company so it almost became like my world and you right. know we're out of work and that was still what we were talking about it was yeah. really boring um, but yeah it just kind of got used to it. every now and then I would have a sort of, I'd be at work and I'd be you know like yeah painting a unicorn head or like painting a magic wand or like sculpting a fake cake for a window display or something and I was just think what am I doing someone's, <laughs> someone's paying me fairly all right money to, uh-huh. to do this and it's just ridiculous right. um but also fantastic and so exciting and I was just you know so pleased to be able to mm. to do a job that I looked forward to going to and it's just silly yeah everything was just yeah. silly um yeah <laughs> <laughs> so then then that was how many a few years and yeah then... that was three about three years I was there for and it sort of got to the point where I you know I the biz- I'd started with the business as they had essentially started and they'd expanded quite a lot, but they were essentially kind of churning out the same kind of product right. but around the world because they were doing well. Yeah. Um, 
but it got a little bit boring for me and I sort okay. of, you know, I hit a ceiling with where mm. I thought we were going to go with it. Um, and as well, because there was no one above me, because I'd started as the only prop maker there. Right. And I essentially still, what we would have freelancers come in when there was a lot of work to do and I would kind mm. of organise them. Um, but there was no one above me, so I wasn't learning really learning much because there right. was no one teaching me anything. I, yep. you know, I'd look on YouTube and try and try out new things, but I kind of felt like I was getting a bit stagnant. Um, and so on to what? Uh, very conveniently, the sort of studio that I was working through, working out of, mm-hmm. um, the next door neighbour that moved in there was a guy who had a sort of luxury interior interiors company. They sort of make surface finishes and specialist kind of paint effects and sculptural things, bespoke artworks for really kind of high-end clients. Mm-hmm. They work with very successful interior designers and, you know, I sort of got chatting with the, the owner of that and he really liked, I think he must have seen something in my work, whether it's mm-hmm. sort of just the fact that I could paint and sort of colour match things and well, I can fix stuff up and blend in a little bit of sculpting. And he just sort of saw and kind of tried to, <laughs> he'd been trying to poach me for about a year or so. Mm-hmm intermittently and I kept saying oh no I don't, I don't think I can do freelance I'm really comfy here mm. it's all got to a point where I thought no you've got to get out of your comfort zone a little bit here um, so I went and worked for him right um, and that was I mean yeah the learning was immediate and constant every single day was there someone um, that you could work with yeah it was it was so very small gonna... it was a very small team um, most people were were sort of fairly new to it as well so they're all learning and the guy that was in charge was the, the main one showing people things but again a lot of it was mostly experimentation so he would have like an idea or a client would come with a sort of surface that they wanted replicated Mm -hmm. and you'd just try and work out how to do it sort of the luxury of it was that there was money and budget so there were an array of materials and you know if you if you needed a certain type of gold leaf to play with you could Mm -hmm. get that and you know things I'd never really materials I'd never worked with before and processes Mm -hmm. not I'd not worked with before so that was, it was lovely to be able mm. to, yeah, and I learned so much doing that and that's where I got into doing the sculptural sort of right. plasterwork stuff right. and, you know, I learned a fair amount about sort of specialist paint effects as well. So I do a bit of that on the side here too. What does that mean, the specialist paint effects? Um, so I, any, I, I, I'm, I've got my head and I absolutely know it's not <laughs> what it is, but there was that 80s thing of rag rolling. <laughs> which I'm sure it's absolutely nothing like, it's, I, mean, I can't you, you keep could, it out of my head. That is a paint effect. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it, it's basically, I'd say it's anything beyond just a, a flat colour on a wall. Um, for example, you know, it's quite trendy at the moment to have like an ombre kind of a fade from one colour to another on a wall or like a sort of lime wash effect. I'm thinking sort of like Portuguese houses, you know, they've got this kind of light texture, sort of mottled looking, Mm -hmm. anything sort of with a texture or metallics, um, a faux concrete, faux stone, anything like that that is just a little bit more advanced than than your regular sort of decorating Mm -hmm. scheme um, is something that I've kind of learned how to do and replicating finishes. So if someone has seen, you know, something on Pinterest that, you know, that they really like, I think a lot of people when they're looking to redecorate maybe they'll start a little mood board yeah and they'll say things and but they may not necessarily know okay how am I going to create that you know you hire a painter decorator and a lot of the time not that they're not skilled at all they definitely are Mm -hmm. but a lot of them won't know how to do say a mural or something Mm. um I love this sort of of reverse engineering it seems that a lot of what you're 
doing is seeing something and like, hmm, how do they do that? And then yeah. I guess tinkering and then coming up with, oh, right, now I know. Yeah, there's yeah, there's a, a hell of a lot of, of working, just working out how mm. things are achieved. And a lot of the time, you know, you may not, you might not get completely where you want it, but you get somewhere that actually is, is better. And because you never want to straight up copy someone's work, particularly if it's like a, a very specific kind of, more of an art than a, mm-hmm. a finish. Use its inspiration. But yeah, to, yeah, to take inspiration and come up with something that is similar to what a client wants, but actually show them something that, hey, actually this is better and it's got more personality to it and mm. this actually would suit the design that you're going for better, I think. Um, so that's something that I, can, that I also offer alongside doing sculptural right. sculptural plaster work. I've got a fair, a fair few strings to my bow at the moment mm. and I'm just seeing what, seeing what works. Obviously being new to the island and... Um, trying to work out what people want here, what there's a market for, what people's budgets will allow for. Mm-hmm. Um, because I've come from this place of working with people where money isn't even really a question. Right. It's and, limitless budget. Though. Yeah, and yeah. it's very fun to work like that, but it's not, I don't find it realistic and it's not a background that I've, I'm really familiar with and mm-hmm. I almost didn't enjoy it in that sense if I wanted to feel a bit like I was doing something useful and it wasn't feeling Hmm. super useful Mm -hmm. or nice I'd Mm -hmm. rather do something that's a little bit more accessible to people almost I guess having I mean I've got no idea what it's like to live without the limit of money Mm -hmm. but I I, when when people are restricted in whether it be financially restricted or in, in materials they can use, the, the creativity is often more intense then mm-hmm. because it becomes more challenging and therefore the results somehow become, well, rewarding from what you're saying as well, but but also stimulating. Yeah, yeah. I was, always said, I always joke that I would, that I work a lot better within a box. Like I, I want constraints. Um, it just let, helps guide me a little bit more because I don't really think of myself as a particularly creative artistic person naturally i think if if i'd not really forced myself looking at these boards i'm finding it very hard to believe that it sounds sounds silly when i say it but um you know if i hadn't really forced myself into a space of you know i decided i wanted to be creative and i wanted to make stuff and i wanted to do a a fun job something that i from the outside looked at as a fun job Mm -hmm. um if i hadn't done that then i'd probably would have ended up as like an accountant or something not that's not a fun job to, uh, to some yeah, people I'm sure. but I'm I'm a lot more sort of numbers based and information based you, know, you are I can, yeah I can okay. quite happily sit in front of a spreadsheet and right and I do like certain sort of certain businessy aspects of okay of the sort of setting up of a business I do mm-hmm. quite enjoy that kind of thing so I always said you know if it gets to the point where my hands fail me, I get arthritis because that does tend to happen with people that do right. a lot of quite intensive work with their hands. Mm. So I think, okay, well, I'll try and <laughs> make sure that I've got, I can fall back on right. something a little bit more office based and I think I would still find some joy in that. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I think most people wouldn't naturally think those two things go together. No, no, I think it is, yeah, fairly rare. But as I say, I think I've kind of just forced myself into being a creative person. It's not, mm-hmm. it's, my family are all fairly creative, but I would have put myself as the least creative one of all of them. They're all far more, na- they have sort of a natural flair, which I feel like I've kind of had to practice a little bit more. I think that's, um, that's for, for anyone who's thinking of doing anything artistic. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I'll refer to the, the pictures we're going to put up. If, if you have had to 
force or push yourself in the direction of producing what you have produced, mm-hmm. I think everyone should just get involved, really. Yeah. Because it, they are staggeringly delicate and beautiful. And to think if you that, that that's something that you've had to push yourself into doing, mm-hmm. to learn to do that, then, yeah, there's hope for everyone yeah. in artistic output. Yeah, no, most definitely, definitely. I, was, I never did... I would never pick up a pencil and just draw something. I have to, you know, now I do because I have to do it in order yeah. to, to create a new piece of work. I need to, to design it and sketch it out first. That's often my least favourite thing and I put it off. You know, for example, the, I've got a fish, the koi carp here with me mm-hmm. and I've been thinking about doing it for ages but I put it off and I put it off because I just didn't think I could draw the fish. And then, but you know, I pick up the pencil, I get the piece of paper, I get a rubber, yeah, right. <laughs> <'cause it's laughs> heavily used, yeah, and just have to start doing it. And it takes a while, but eventually mm. it starts to look like how I want it to look. Mm. And there's so many reference images involved as well. You know, I can't just draw something out of my brain. Some people can, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, it's a real concerted effort to, mm. to make it happen. And part of that is understanding how to use the pencil as a tool of what kind of line it draws or what's the, what are the stages that you have to go through? I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's a pretty, a pretty simplified version of how I use any old pencil and I just, it's just making the marks to get that composition, to get the shape right and, you know, okay, is the, is the tail on that fish? Does the, does the flow look correct to me? Does it look feasible? Mm-hmm. Does, does that fin there look correct? Um, you know, I don't go into sort of shading and detailing or anything. It's pretty much just a block outline that I'm looking for, mm-hmm. you know, as simplified as you can get it. Um, because a lot of it, it evolves with when you're adding the 3D element. That's when right. sort of the detail comes in and, mm-hmm. and gauging the depth and the thicknesses. Okay, how much, which areas of plaster need to be deeper and which are going to be shallower. That's where I think it gets a little bit more technical for me. Mm-hmm. Drawing side, I just look at it as just... Draw, draw the fish. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, could we, I mean, I wonder if it's worthwhile to talk it through. Mm-hmm. Which one would be the best one to talk through? That, that, that's a, I know it's a bird. It's an ibis. Is it? Yeah, it's based on a, I saw a picture of a glossy ibis when I was just trawling oh. Pinterest for pretty looking birds. Right. Um, and I just thought it was lovely. Um, so so this, the, this, the ibis is standing on some ground, rough ground, and then there's... Um, what are, what are these? Just, uh, just some grasses, grasses or, uh, okay. kind of marshy, marshy looking grasses. Yeah. And nondescript leaves right. <laughs> at the top, just because originally it was just the bird, and then I thought that he looks just lost in the abyss of nothingness okay. there. So yeah. I ended up adding a load of extra details around him. So, um, that, so you start off, you draw the outline of the ibis. Yes. Yeah, so I start by drawing. Uh, on paper, I'll draw the outline. I'll kind of get the the sort of the sections of feathers, if you will. Okay. Um, I won't draw every little detail yeah. of the feather. I just sort of block out the main areas, like that's one chunk of feathers, and then yeah. there's a little layer below it and a layer below it. Mm-hmm. I draw out the the rough shape of the branches and the leaves. Yeah. The rough area where the ground would be. Um, that would be direct onto that board. No, I draw, I draw it on, on paper, paper and then first. I and then I trace okay. it out, trace it over. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'll be brave enough to draw directly onto the board if I'm feeling particularly lazy and I don't want to go with the tracing paper back and forth okay. and back and forth. 
Um, but generally I do the tracing just because I, I don't trust myself drawing straight <laughs> onto the board. Yeah. Um, and once I'm happy with that, the drawing, then I chuck a load of plaster on it, essentially. Right. I, I use palette knives and I use gypsum plaster, essentially the kind of plaster that you, you throw on a wall. It's mm. um, quite a thick mix because, mm -hmm. I mean, you can make them runnier, you can make them thicker. Right. Um, you can get ones that, with various working times um, from like a quick 20-minute one to mm -hmm. a 60-minute one. I tend to use the 60-minute ones because then it'll give me a little bit more time to yeah. play with it. Um, but I get the bulk of the plaster on there. I so try what that would mean you would put the, the sort of the feather part of the bird's body on Yes, first. yeah. So I'll, I'll get plaster across all of the bits where plaster needs to be. So I'll get the body of the bird on and I'll do it quite deep. Yeah. Um, I'll know that the, the head and the neck of the bird is going to be a bit shallower. Because so you've I'll got to think in bit, depth. Yeah, course, you've right. got to try and mm -hmm. understand which bits are going to be chunkier and which yeah. bits are, are shallower and closer to the board. Okay. Um, for the more delicate bits like the grasses mm -hmm. and the branches, I find it quite useful to use a piping bag. Ah. Um, that you get all the different nozzles and stuff right. um, and just pipe those on. Mm. And then it's a waiting game. Because once, once you've chucked the plaster on, you need to wait. You know, although it's, you, I say I'll use a 60-minute plaster, it means I can work with it for 60 minutes, but it yeah. won't dry in 60 right. minutes. Um, right depending on the temperature and the humidity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sort of going to be waiting for it to dry anywhere from sort of four days to two weeks, depending Before how. Before you can put the next layer of plaster on. It generally goes on in one, one layer. Um, I don't often. The whole of that would be, wow. Yeah, what, yeah. And sculpted in that way or just rough, rough done? Rough, just very roughly done okay. in one layer, of thick, wet layer of plaster. And so, then it's oh, left wow. to dry. So, so the, the individual feathers on closest to the head here, they they they've got different depth to each of the feathers there. So if you, you would imagine, do those, but without the. If you imagine it as a kind of smooth thing, yeah, as a when it's on wet, right, and then once it's dry, that's when I can carve in those bits of depth and those recesses. So you, you put it on at the highest height and yes. then carve away, yeah. Okay. Yeah, right, think right. of it as sort of like um, carving a statue out of marble. Yes. But instead of starting with a big, right, a big okay. rectangle cube oblong thing, yeah, I'm starting with the approximate shape. Okay. And the softness, and then once it's dry, I can carve into it and right. try and find those details. So step one is drawing it. Step two is applying the plaster. Then big long waiting time for it to dry. Yeah. Step three is using craft knives or any kind of very sharp implements okay. to trim the silhouette. So what I try and look for is my, I try and find my original pencil lines. Yeah. Because um, inevitably when you're plopping the plaster on, it, it goes over a little yes. bit or you get bits of plaster here and there. Mm -hmm. So I try and find my original lines or roughly so mm. that the silhouette begins to look a little bit more like mm. what, I what I'd drawn in the first place. Um, and I'll use, so I'll use knives to trim the silhouette and I will use sort of like clay kind of gouges to kind of scrape away at the okay. surface to kind of even when it out. it's solid. Yeah, okay. to make it smoother. Mm -hmm. And from there, step four is like sanding and detailing. So once I've carved bits away and I've got things at the right depth, I can use these little metal sculpting tools. I call them my dentist tools because they mm. look like something that should be in a dentist's office. Yeah. And some of them are quite sharp and nasty. Um, but I have like two or three that seem to just do 
everything. I've got mm. about 100 tools probably, but there's like two or three that if I can't find them, I'm like, oh, where's my favourite ones? Yeah. Um, and that's where all of the details of the line work and, you know, carving out those individual feathers um, and popping in like the texture of, on, the, on the neck of the bird and mm -hmm. the lines and the leaves. That's where that kind of comes in. Um, and it's always a case of, it's, I like it because it's quite a forgiving kind of art form in the sense that if you, if you take a bit too much away okay, I was from the plaster, I just plop a bit more on. It, yeah. it delays me a bit because then I've got to wait for that plaster to dry. But yeah. I'm generally not waiting for another inch and a half of plaster to dry. Yes. It's usually just, oh, okay, I've, I've knocked a bit of the end of that feather off, so I'll just pop so that I, back So I guess in. the process of that is, can I work it? I've made a mistake. Can I work it so it looks like I haven't? Yeah, and yeah. If, if you can't do that, then it's put more on. Yeah, exactly. Okay. There's there's always a, a sort of a moment where I'm like, can I just sort of sandpaper around that bit uh -huh. and make yeah. that look neater and and call it nature and say, <laughs> oh, you know, nature's imperfect. That's the, that's the party line for it. But yeah. um, but yeah, it's forgiving. It's very forgiving. So if you do if you make a mistake, then you just you build it back up. Right. And if you've put too much on, you can still take more away. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I do enjoy it in that respect. And so, so once you've done the fine detail mm -hmm. and the, the roughness as well, how, how do you do the roughness? That's... Um, so the, the sort of body of that rocky face mm -hmm. is, so I've just plopped the plaster on and then I've used a gouge. You can see it almost okay. in the way that, um, you know, you get sort of whittled wood. Mm -hmm. It's got that kind of pattern where little bits have been gouged out. Mm -hmm. So that's the background and then the sort of the kind of mossy, bits yeah. that I sort of put on is just stippled with the brush right, okay. sort of while it's wet yeah. Um, so yeah there's, there's so many textures you can achieve yeah. with it and just sort of like looking around and find okay what if I if I tap it with that thing that I've just found <laughs> in the corner there if it's like a toothbrush or you know mm. an old paintbrush because I've got so many horrible old paintbrushes where I've like chopped the ends off and it's like my mum will come into the studio and say, get rid of that. And I'm like, no, that's a very important tool. It looks like it should go in the bin, but it's uh -huh. actually incredibly useful for this very specific texture that I need to do once a year. Yeah. It's interesting. We, uh, Sally and I started doing a um, lino print course at the exchange. And the day we did the last Sunday, not, not one just past one before. And then we went for a walk in the Undercliff in St. Lawrence. Mm-hmm. And once you do stuff like that, it changes the way you look at the world. Because you're, we were looking at the contrast between raised and, and, and sunken objects, how the light was falling on it, and then, oh, how would you do that? And it's, it's a fascinating way to start re-seeing the world, which is you're not only just re-seeing the world from your description, you're re-seeing re every item as a potential creator of yeah, texture. Yeah, ways to make marks and things like that. And... You know, like you say, when you're sort of, when you're out and about and things, and now I sort of find myself noticing textures or, you know, mm. I'll, I'll see a certain leaf and I'm like, oh, I'll just take a picture of this leaf. I really like that leaf. <laughs> or, you know, a lot of the time the textures of cliffs, mm. um, I'll stop and take pictures of those. Just, right. Just to get that kind of natural form yeah. is something that I always like try and find into in my work. It's mm. always useful to have reference images, even if you're not sure what it's for yet. So right. I think, oh, that might be useful at some point. Yeah, yeah. So going back to this piece here, then you, you've produced it. Mm -hmm. How does it then end up looking so perfect? Um, it gets it gets a lovely coat of, of white spray paint. It's okay. like a, an acrylic sealer to sort of make sure that it's all safe and encased. And yeah. don't get me wrong, it is still delicate. If you 
Right. If you had this on a wall and you opened a door and slammed it into it, it's, right. it's going to make a mark. It's going to dent it. Yeah. If you try and dig your nail into it, you probably can. Wow. Okay. Um, so, so do yeah, people then frame those? To give it some form of protection, or they just put it in a place where there's no doors or fingernails. <laughs> I, I mean, I would, I would, rec- I've never seen them framed like behind glass. I think, personally, I think you'd lose a lot of the, okay. you know, the depth in it. Yeah. Because um, I think it's really nice the way that, with with light and yeah, the beautiful. light and the shadows that it creates, and as the sun moves around a room, it sort of, right. you know, it transforms a little bit almost. Yeah, so I think. Yeah. I would I wouldn't recommend framing them, but people yeah. can do whatever they whatever they like with them. If I I like them just as they are, straight mm. on the wall because I've I've built up a frame on the back of them to add that sort of thickness, so it almost looks like it's on a canvas. Yeah. Um. But you could. I also think they would look quite nice with a with a kind of wide frame, just you know a little bit of space between the board and the frame, mm-hmm. just to just as a border for it. Mm-hmm. Maybe a, a nice black frame look nice but yeah i've never actually gone to the trouble of framing any of the pieces right. i should definitely do that at some point and see what it looks like so okay. if someone could commission you to do something like this I've, I've you know i've got a an idea in their head or not even an idea but come to you and say i'd like to some, have something beautiful please yeah absolutely and that's that's the kind of thing that i really love doing the most i mean i have my own ideas and the so the works that i create at the moment are predominantly you know my ideas of things that I just think, oh, that would be really lovely to have a go at doing that, and can I get that texture, and how would that look? Mm. Um, so the artworks are all sort of available to buy, sort of direct from me, or sometimes they're in a gallery. Um, but what I love doing is creating bespoke things for people, where I can take, where they've come to me with an idea, or you know, even just like a general vibe of a of a space, um, and they put that kind of trust in me to go okay. away and brainstorm some ideas or they provide some reference images of something they've seen that they like. Okay. Um, so that could be, here's a room. What yeah. could you do? Yeah. Right. Yeah, it can be as, as specific or as vague as anyone wants, really. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of happy to take on the kind of challenge mm. of making something that someone likes. And there's always, you know, I think a lot of the time the idea of commissioning an artwork might be a little bit kind of daunting for people and maybe that lack of control and often it can be quite an ex- you think of it as quite an expensive process um, when you you know you don't know what you're going to end up with but yeah. it's very much a step by step walk it through collaborative process of um, coming up with designs together doing samples making sure that everyone is kind right. of happy and so it's not a big surprise shares that end. yeah so okay. shares that clear vision of okay how this is how it's going to look but trying to be as clear as I possibly can as mm-hmm. this is what you're going to end up with yeah you know, because you can't show them exactly because you haven't no, made it yet. But no. based on the artwork that I already have and, you know, very clear and precise design sketches that get sort of agreed upon before mm. any plaster goes on a board. I mean, for in a world of mass production and everything coming to one homogenous look, I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at kitchens that get installed in people's houses these days, they all look the same. Yeah. The opportunity for somebody to have something created for them that is totally unique, yeah. that they've had a part of, yeah. is, is a, well, a special luxury, really. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. It's, it's, it's certainly a, a luxury thing, but I think it's a lovely thing that, you know, when you've got your own vision or your own personality in a piece mm. of artwork, it's something that you're going to have forever and hopefully will get passed down yeah. through, right. through generations and be something that's treasured and, yeah, and will endure. Mm-hmm. Well, they're fantastically beautiful. Thank you for coming along today. Thank you very much. It's really, it's been fascinating to learn. 
And uh, I look forward to seeing some pictures about the magic wands as well. <laughs> yes, yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to dig out some, some <laughs> things from the archives. Brilliant, um, thank you. Thank you. Cheers.